Yeah, y'all thought I was going to say Mark, huh? No, uh, we're taking a break from the Gospel of Mark for the next month or so. Uh, we're taking a break for my sake. Uh, I asked Pastor Stephen if I could not preach in Mark for a minute because chapter 9 was really tough for me. Uh, so we're going to take a break for about a month or so and then uh, get back into chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel. Um, but for the next month, we're going to be looking at some various texts that I choose um, and maybe some topics that I think are, are good and helpful for us to hear right now. Um, and tonight we're going to be in Psalm 56. Now this is a psalm of lament, right? It's a psalm where King David made his complaint to God about his enemies oppressing him and persecuting him. Uh, but it's also a psalm of confidence and praise, right? This is a, it's a mixed psalm. You'll see that sometimes in the, in the Psalter. Um, it's a psalm of confidence and praise as well as a psalm of lament. It's a psalm uh, where David praises God for his help and for caring about him and sustaining him. Um, it's a psalm where David expressed his confidence in the love and care of God for him, even in the midst of persecution and trial. Um, I read one commentator said that this is a psalm of fear and faith. It's a psalm of fear and faith, but one where faith prevails, as it always should. Um, and I want to preach this psalm to you and me, because I'm preaching this to me. I'm actually preaching this because it smacked me in the face a couple of weeks ago and was very encouraging uh, to me. But I want to preach this psalm for a good reason. Um, I want to preach it not because we are currently being persecuted heavily, like some of our brothers and sisters elsewhere in the world. But I want to preach this in order to get deep into our hearts what we need to know and remember for when it's our turn to suffer. Um, as always, I'm not trying to be some kind of fear monger. Um, but I think it's apparent to all who have open eyes that unless God grants repentance on a massive national scale, the church in America is in for hard times in the years to come, possibly sooner than we think. Uh, and in light of that, we need to suffer well. We will need to suffer well. We don't think about that often, do we? We think, I'm just going to avoid the suffering. It's not usually how it works. Actually, the Bible doesn't tell you how to avoid suffering. It tells you how to avoid damnation through faith in Christ. But in an earthly way, it doesn't really tell you very much how to avoid suffering um, in all of its forms. Rather, it tells you how to glorify God in the midst of suffering. But we need to know, we will need to know how to suffer well. In order to give a faithful witness about Christ, in order to persevere through pain and glorify God in our suffering, we will, know, we will need to know how to suffer well. So we need to prepare in advance. So that when the day of trouble comes, we are not caught off guard and not unprepared. Or rather, are, yeah, we are not unprepared. So know this. Uh, you don't just magically endure well. Right? You don't magically just suffer well. That's not how it works. God does not ordinarily zap people with perseverance and great faith. Right? Um, you, you don't just magically endure well. You must be prepared ahead of time and equipped by the word. And this psalm helps us to prepare for such things. It's a psalm that reminds us of the confidence we ought to have in God in the midst of trials and why we should have confidence in God. It's a psalm that reminds us of God's power, sovereignty, love, tender care, mercy, listening ear, governing providence, and help that is for his people who look to him for grace. And so we come to this portion of the word of God to be encouraged and to begin to prepare ourselves with the knowledge that we will desperately need to suffer well and honor the Lord as holy through trials. Uh, but let me say this too. Um, maybe you're currently going through something very hard. 
right, like right now, something very painful. Um, it's not necessarily uh, persecution, but it's, it's a hard circumstance nonetheless. And you're weary, and you feel defeated, and you're downcast. Um, you're suffering, and you're afraid, and you're hurt. Well, this psalm instructs you as well. Um, it, it's, it's a balm for general suffering and general pain and general trials, as well as specifically persecution. So with that said, Christian, know this. The word of God is for you. Uh, no matter where you're at in life, the word is always relevant. Every portion of scripture is always relevant. right? We are not as a people being persecuted heavily right now, but this psalm prepares us for it. Maybe you're not suffering anything right now, and I hope that that's true. But this psalm will prepare you for the day of trouble. Or maybe you're in the middle of it right now. And this psalm speaks to you today. But know for a fact that the word of God is always for you. To prepare you, to sustain you in the midst of it, so you can look back on it wherever you're at in life. Every portion of the word is relevant. Know this, God did not have the word written for himself. He had it recorded for our sakes, and we praise him for it. So with that said, uh, if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Psalm 56. To the choir master, according to the dove on far-off terebinths, a mictum of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, have mercy upon us, we pray. Guide us by your word and spirit. Grant us understanding and wisdom that comes from you. Grant that we would trust in you more deeply. Grant that our faith would be a true and abiding one. Show us your love power and wisdom in your word sanctify us in the truth your word is truth we ask for these things in jesus name and for his sake amen you may be seated all right let's begin with some context here um, we find the setting for this psalm in the superscription uh, the superscription is the actual title of the psalm in our translation in the esv it's found above verse one written in all capital letters 
And for our purposes this evening, I want to focus on the last sentence of the superscription, a mictum of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Right, that line, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. This tells us that this psalm is connected to a historical event in David's life. And that event is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, verse 10 through chapter 22, verse 1. Um, so this psalm was written by David either during his time in Gath or as a reflection of his thinking and experience while in Gath. Um, but let me go ahead and summarize for you uh, that passage in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Um, David had been secretly anointed king of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And that means David was to be king, but he was not yet installed as king. And God had told Saul, the current king of Israel, that he was taking the kingdom away from Saul. Saul didn't like that. right? Saul was an ungodly man. Saul did not like that. And over time... Seeing David's successes in battle and popularity with the people, Saul came to see that it was David who was to be king. And so Saul tries to kill David. So David runs from Saul, right, as you would. David runs from Saul, but Saul keeps trying to hunt David down. And eventually, for some reason, in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, David decides that he would be safer in Gath. Now, where is Gath? It's in Philistia. That's its Philistine country, right? Now, why David thought he was going to be safer in Gath, I have no idea, right? But he thought, I'll go hide out with the Philistines and everything will be great. And that's foolish, right? You'll remember that David had killed the great Philistine champion, Goliath, right? And not only that, but if you read beyond that in 1 Samuel, you'll see that David also won many other battles against the Philistines. David himself killed at least 100 of them. Right? So David has won many battles against the Philistines. Suffice it to say, the, the king of Gath, Achish, and the Philistines in general, hated David just as much as Saul did. Maybe a little more. Both Saul, the king of Israel, and Achish, the king of Gath, would both be very happy to kill David. Now David realizes this once he's in Gath. You can only imagine what a realization that would have been for him. This was a bad idea. I'm stuck. Right? David realizes this once he gets to Gath. And he decides to pretend to be insane. Right? The, the text in 1 Samuel 21 says he let his spittle drip down his beard and he made claw marks on the gates of the, of the city. Right? So he, he's, he's acting like a madman in hope that Achish won't kill a crazy person. Right? Now, whether or not what David did was sinful is another question for another day. That's a good discussion question. Um, but God, in mercy turned the heart of Achish, and David's life was spared. And he was able to safely get out of Gath and evade Saul as well. He escaped to the cave of Adullam. Right, so this was a, a time of great fear and distress for David. His enemies had surrounded him. He couldn't go to Israel, or Saul would kill him. He's stuck in Gath, where the Philistines want to kill him. And David hadn't done anything wrong. At this point in his life, David hadn't really done anything wrong, especially not to Saul, especially not to the, God, to the Israelites who wanted to kill him. He had been a faithful servant of God, but now here he is, oppressed on all sides. His enemies, the Philistines, are before him. And catch this, many who should have been his friends, Israelites, were loyal to Saul and wanted him dead. 
This, this would have been a terrifying time in David's life, a time of uncertainty, a, a, a time of fear, a crazy time for him. And in our psalm, David expresses the anxiety, helplessness, and oppression that he was dealing with. In verses 1 and 2, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. Verses 5 and 6 say, All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. David's telling us his, his situation. And I know I kind of highlighted it in my inflections, but notice the language of strife and fighting that David uses. They attack him. They trample on him. The language he uses is like he's surrounded by wild animals who won't stop until they've devoured him. They're watching his steps, planning and plotting on when and how best to attack him. When is the most opportune time for us to strike so that we can bring him down to death? And they won't be satisfied until they have his life. They won't be satisfied until they've spilled his blood. And he says every thought of these people is evil. And it's against him. That is all of their mental energy is spent on planning how to get him. And how to harm him. And David says, I believe it's verse 2, many attack me proudly. I, thought, I felt like this was interesting. This could mean that they come after him with insolence and arrogance. They attack him with pride, rejecting that he is God's appointed king. Paying no mind that he is one of God's precious people. They don't care. They're being arrogant and they're attacking him. Those who oppress him have no fear of God before their eyes. Or it could be translated, many attack me from high places. And that means that those who are opposing him and seeking his ill are in positions of power. And that makes sense, right? He has two kings who both want him dead, right? People in great positions and high places. It seems to him like all the powers of a fallen world are militated against him. We all know that the powerful are a hard force to stop. The wicked and powerful, there are also godly powerful people, right? We're not Marxists. Power is not intrinsically evil. Our God is omnipotent after all, and he is the very definition of good. But the wicked and powerful often enjoy treading upon the righteous as if there is no God in heaven and no day of vengeance for the wicked. And notice that three times David says, all day long, all day long, they're after him. He has no rest from his enemies. He has nowhere to hide, nowhere to run. Every single day, for days on end, David's waiting for the other shoe to drop. He's waiting for them to finally get to him and kill him. He's tired. You can imagine how tired would you be if day after day you're surrounded by people who want to kill you. He's tired. He has no rest. It seems like he doesn't have a friend in this world. That everyone's out to harm him because he's one of God's people. Every day is a fight with no rescue in sight, it seems. Now, a quick note here. King David's life is a small, dark picture and foreshadowing of the son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true king of the true Israel of God, who was opposed by the wicked his whole life. But this is also a picture of the experience of the people of God at different times in different places throughout history. Right? 
It's a picture of the suffering that the individual believer may undergo at the hands of the wicked. But it can also serve as a picture of the corporate suffering of the people of God. How do I know that? It's a psalm. That means it's meant to be sung by all of God's people and appropriated by them when fitting. So with that said, we're within the bounds of this psalm to see how it applies to our lives and our situations when we are oppressed and persecuted by the ungodly. I just wanted you to know that before we go any further. But we can certainly understand, even if it's in a small way, we can understand to some degree how David felt, I think. All right? For us, I'm talking about the church, right? at least the faithful church, it often seems like every single news headline is another wave of bad news for the church. I don't just mean like bad news like for America in general, though that's true too, uh, but like, a, like especially bad news for Christians. All right, you hear of companies taking positions that they will, they're going to enforce upon their employees um, that, that have the potential to leave devout Christians without a job unless they bow down to a godless standard. Uh, propositions uh, for even more wicked public school curriculum that Christian school teachers will be forced to teach or lose their jobs. Um, proposed legislation that is intentionally targeted at biblical Christianity and the erosion of religious liberty. We see that. Uh, vile and flagrant sins being passed off as natural and praiseworthy, and those who oppose them are being accused of hate speech and verbal violence, whatever that is. Wicked men and wicked women who hate Christ being placed in positions of extreme authority in federal, state, and local governments. Churches being forced underground in Canada. Maybe you've not been paying attention, but that's currently going on. Churches that are told you are not allowed to meet because the state says so, and they're meeting underground now because the state has fenced off their entire uh, worship facility. They can't go to their church building anymore, so they've been forced underground. Pastors being jailed for street preaching in England. That has happened multiple times over the last few years, and we recognize that we're usually only a few years behind those two countries on policy. And that's just a Monday night news cycle, man. <laughs> right? More than that, those who should be our friends are often on the side of the wicked as well. Right? We have those, some even conservative Christians, who are being useful idiots and are throwing all their weight behind godless causes. They don't realize they're going to help destroy the church in this country. Those who should be our friends are acting as our enemies. More than that, there's the apostate church denominations in America. And I'm talking now about that large number of people in our country who profess the name of Jesus Christ, but wage war against the true church. As Jesus says in Revelation 2, they are a synagogue of Satan. Claiming to follow Christ, they trample upon his precious blood and bear fangs and rail at the true people of God. Those who should be our friends are throwing all their support behind a world system that wants the church to suffer, be silenced, and die. Like the Israelites who were loyal to Saul. These people claim to be part of the true Israel of God, the church, but have sworn their allegiance to Caesar. Though the fires have not yet been laid upon us, we can smell the wood burning and hear the mob assembling. Now, it often feels, again, if you're paying attention, it feels as if the church is surrounded on all sides. It feels as if it's just a matter of time before the Philistines are upon us with swords drawn to take our lives. It's scary. 
I'm not trying to scare you, I'm just stating a fact. If you think on these things for more than five minutes, you'll see that, humanly speaking, there is reason to have some concern. It's scary. This is a very uncertain time, and it, time is always uncertain. I, granted, I know it's kind of become a cliche in the last year or two, uh, but this is different, right? We don't know how this is going to shake out over the next couple of decades for the church in our country. We don't know. This is unprecedented for us. And I know that I often find myself getting very upset when I think about these things. Right? And I can't be the only one because I'm not crazy. Or maybe I am, and y'all shouldn't let me be your pastor. <laughs> I'm be like, David, let the spit dribble down my beard and all that. Anyway, I know that I often find myself being very upset about these things, and, and I know many of you do too. I know that some of you actually nearly live in constant fear because of this stuff. So then, what are we to do when we're afraid? What are we to do when the heat is on? Right, that's, that's what I'm driving at. What, what are we supposed to do? Because what David tells us in this psalm that he learned and that he did is a balm to our souls. It's good for us. And what we're about to look at here is a great antidote against fear. So what do we do when we find ourselves afraid? Well, first, we are to trust in God, whose word we praise. Verses 3 and 4, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. Verses 10 and 11, in God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. David tells us that this is what he learned to do. And this might actually be a summary of the whole psalm, so we'll start here. Now no, notice, David was not a stoic, was he? He had emotions. He had emotions. And when his enemies were breathing down his neck, he got scared sometimes. That's normal. You're going to be afraid. Right? You're going to have some level of concern. But what he refused to do, and please hear me, what he refused to do was wallow in his fear. Right? And this, is, I'm not just, this isn't just bumper sticker, stupid, evangelifish stuff that I'm telling you right now. Right? I don't like that junk either. It's, I'm, what I'm telling you is the truth. David refused to wallow in his fear. He refused to sit in despair every day. He refused to let fear rule him. And he resolved to do something when he was afraid. He resolved to put his trust in God. He resolved to do it. Notice that. He says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. That is, every time we find ourselves overwhelmed by fear of suffering or fear of the future, we are to place our trust in God. And what I want to highlight here, brothers and sisters, is, is, is that this is an act of the will. David doesn't say, when I'm afraid, my trust is magically placed in God and I feel better immediately. That's dumb. That's not what he did. Right? He says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in God. David daily made the choice to put his trust in God instead of being afraid. His fear led him to faith. Right? A certain amount of fear pushed him toward the Lord and he was resolved to trust God. Make the choice, beloved. Make the choice. Make the choice to trust in him. When you are afraid, make the choice. It's an act of the will. And brothers and sisters, our God is incredibly trustworthy. Just think with me for a moment. Who would you rather trust in? Like, who else would you rather go to? Who can help you more than he can? Who has more power to deliver you? 
Who has more wisdom to guide you? Who has a longer arm to reach you? Who is more faithful to promise you? No one. So it only makes sense for him to be the one you trust in when you're afraid. But notice that David says, In God whose word I praise. In God I trust. Whose word I praise. This is really important for us to see here. David is trusting in God, but it is only by God's word, the scriptures, or at David's time, living prophets too. We don't have those anymore. But David had living prophets as well. It's only by God's word that we know who God is. You can know that there is a God without the Bible. right? Romans 1 says that. The natural revelation in the world will show you that there is a God and that you're a sinner. But you can't know who God is or anything about him apart from the word of God. You can't know what God has promised apart from his word. You can't know what it is about God you should be trusting in apart from his word. Knowledge of the word of God is what our trust in God is predicated upon. Right? Trust presupposes knowing what God has said. After all, you cannot trust, in general, unless someone has told you something or promised you something to believe that that person is for you or will do for you. Trust is always predicated upon word. Now, what is it that God has said in his word that causes us to trust in him? There are many, many things that can be said, but two things that I think really summarize most of the Bible, honestly. Two things come to my mind immediately when I think about trusting God through hardship and fear. First, he is sovereign. Surprise, surprise, the Calvinist is about to talk about God's sovereignty. <laughs> he is sovereign. Brothers and sisters, our God controls literally everything in the universe, both visible and invisible. There is not a speck of dust that floats in a ray of sunlight that God has not set on its course. Not one. There are no maverick molecules in this universe. There are no rogue agents. There are no human beings who are operating outside of God's sovereign decree. Literally, nothing happens outside of the plan and will of God because God is running the show, not man. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Right, this is a confessional Baptist church, right? We're, we're Reformed Baptists here. We will sign off on that for a statement of faith. But do we believe that? God is absolutely sovereign. Every single detail, the smallest thing, he reigns over it and directs it. It is God who builds kingdoms and governments and God who strikes them down. Ask Nebuchadnezzar. It's God who turns the heart of kings wherever he wills. They're like a river in his hand, is what Solomon says in the Proverbs. It is God who determines our lifespans, what we will do and how we will do it. David tells us that in Psalm 139. It is God who determines how the dice fall. That's what Solomon says in Proverbs. Imagine that. To paraphrase John Piper, nothing in Las Vegas is random. Lots of it's sinful, but none of it's random. Nothing is arbitrary. 
Nothing is chaos. You consider that for a moment? Oh, God, help us. We look around at the world and everything in our country seems to be utter chaos. And from a human perspective, it is. But it is not. I mean, ultimately, nothing, chaos cannot exist in a universe where there is a God. We do not serve an impotent wuss. We serve God omnipotent. Nothing is chaos. Know this for a certainty, Christian, and let your fear go. Nothing is out of control. Nothing is out of control. Let our country burn to the ground and the church suffer with it. If that is the will of God, it is part of the plan. Though we don't understand the why of everything that he allows, nevertheless, we know who's running things. It is God. And second, know this. He loves you. We're going to flesh this out more in the things in the rest of this psalm. But he loves you. The sovereign God loves you. He tells us in his word that he chose you before you were even born. He has guided every aspect of your life so that you would come to know him. He gave his son for your salvation. He has kept his holy hands upon you for your good. And he is making all things subservient to your salvation. Don't ever doubt his love for you. He tells you and has shown you that he loves you. So watch your fear melt away as you consider that the one who controls your life and all that befalls you also loves you. Oh, it's terrifying to think God controls every aspect of your life and that he doesn't love you. That's horrifying. But oh, to know that the one who is sovereign over all also loves me? There's peace. There's peace. King David knew these things. He knew that God is sovereign over the affairs of men, and he knew that God loved him. God continues to love him because God is God of the living, and David is alive. Now, David had a specific promise that he would be king, so he knew he would live through this ordeal, and I think he trusted in that as well. But I think that most of the promises of God in Scripture are different variations of the twin truths that God is sovereign and God loves his people. Trust in this God, and your fear cannot stay long. A second thing, know that he cares. Know that he cares. We're not Muslims. We believe in a transcendent God, but we don't believe in a God that doesn't interact with his people. Our God cares. Verse 8, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? When you're afraid and when the pain is upon you, remember that your God cares about you. David here mentions his tossings, might be better translated wanderings. That is, all the times where David found himself without a place to go. David moved all the time because he was always on the run from one place to another. God keeps count of all of our being tossed to and fro by the world. He keeps a perfect record of our being exiled by the world and not being given a place to rest our heads. And what a precious picture David gives us of God putting our tears in his bottle. Every tear we cry, he has stored up. Every ounce of pain we endure for his sake is precious to him. Nothing that we suffer escapes the eye of God. Everything is written down in his book of remembrance. Do you see the picture here, beloved? And just real quick, I call you beloved 
Because you are the beloved of God in Christ Jesus. Do you see the picture here? None of your pain is ignored. There is a perfect record of all of it kept in heaven by God. Now what does that mean? It means you're valuable to him. You're valuable to him. You are his child. When you lie in bed or are at your table and weep because of your pain, he is there. He's there. He's not far from you. He sees you. He cares about you. Please know that, Christian. Know that. He loves you. He cares about you more than you'll ever know. And when the sovereign God of the universe bottles your tears and keeps a record of all your pain, what do you have to fear? If God loves you, if God cares about every tear that you cry, why should you be afraid? And here's what I mean, if you're not seeing the connection here. Do you think that God keeps such a record for himself? You think he'll forget, maybe? No. God keeps a record for the day of judgment. God keeps a record for the day of judgment. And on that day, in the words of Matthew Henry, his bottle of your tears will become vials of his wrath for those who caused him and did not repent. Would any earthly father see that his child is habitually wronged and not seek out for justice? How much more will our earthly, or rather our heavenly father, mete out justice to those who harmed his precious children? Christian, he cares. Don't think for a moment that he doesn't. He is keeping a close watch on you. He is near to you, and he will not let one injustice go unnoticed. And one day, every record will be set straight because your God loves you more than you'll ever know. If God bottles your tears, you should know that he loves you dearly. And the one who loves you most will do you good in the end. A third thing to remember when you're afraid. He hears you when you cry to him. Verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God. Verse 9. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This psalm is a prayer. Right? Verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God. It's a prayer. David is crying out to God. Be gracious to me. Help me. Come to my aid. Fight for me. And listen. You don't cry out to someone for help unless you know that they'll hear you. That's why you don't ask strangers to help you move. You don't ask strangers for help generally, do we? Why? Because you don't know if they will or not. But we will call those who we know love us. We will call those who we know have the ability to help us. And that's why we cry out to God. We have the promise that he hears the prayers of the righteous and comes to their aid. And you and I, Christian, have been made righteous by Christ through faith. So, of course, God bends his ears to hear our prayer. If he bottles our tears, surely he hears our prayers. And in love, he will help us. Now, I want to be clear. David knew that his earthly enemies would be turned back because he knew that he had the promise that he would be king of Israel. And we have no such promises of earthly deliverance from those who would seek to harm us. We have no such promise. Anyone who's trying to sell you that is also trying to take your money. It's the prosperity gospel. We have no such promise of earthly deliverance 
In fact, there have been many who have died for Christ, and there will be many more, I fear, who will die for him. But the point is that when we cry out to God, he will, in some form or fashion, come to the aid of his people. How? I don't know. I'm not him. Ask him. I don't know how he's going to come to our aid in all of our situations, but I know that he will. That's the principle here. In his way, according to his good sovereign will for our lives, he will help us. When we call upon him, he will rout our spiritual enemies. When we pray to him and ask him to help us to withstand the trial, when we ask him to help us to trust in him more, he will by his spirit embolden us and empower us to persevere and glorify him. When we cry to him, he will open our mouths so that we give witness to Christ and silence our enemies. When we believe his precious promises given to us, promises of love and help, and when we ask him to keep his word, he will rush to our defense and bless us more than we ever thought was possible. So why then should we be afraid when the almighty God of the universe hears our prayers? Cry out to him, Christian. He hears you. A fourth thing for when you're afraid. Know that God is for you. Verse 9. This I know, that God is for me. What a precious promise for us. Memorize that one. Should be easy enough. Short. This I know, that God is for me. He is for us. Now, that does not mean that he is bound to do everything we want him to do. He is not our cosmic errand boy. He is God. But it means something better, actually, than that he does everything you want him to do. It means that everything that he does for us is for our good. Right? And just reflecting on being a dad for a moment and him being our heavenly father, if I gave my daughter everything that she asked for, she would be dead but I'm for her. In my purest moments, the things that I do for her are for her good. How much more your father who's perfect. It's better that he is for you than that he does what you want him to do. He's for you. All that he does is for his glory and for the good of those who love him. And you know, in the history of interpretation of this verse, theologians have seen a strong connection here with what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 31 and 32. Verse 9 of our psalm says, God is for us. Paul says in Romans 8, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God is for us, if we are in league with God, that is, if we are covenanted to God, through faith in his son, who can honestly stand against us? That is, who can stand between us and the God who has covenanted himself to us? Nobody. Not even you, is what Paul says. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. If God is for us, why should we be afraid? If the sovereign God is working all things together for our good, why should we fear? And Christian, I know this, I know that in the heat of the moment, we are so prone to wonder if it's actually true that God is for us. I know. I know that that's what we do. Right? 
But please, when you find yourself asking, has God abandoned me? Is God actually for me? When you find yourself doubting what this verse says, please remember what the apostle says. He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He gave his son for you. He gave his son for you. The cross is the eternal proof that he is for you. If God, listen, if God is not for you, if God is not ultimately for your good, then why in the world would, we, would he give his only begotten son for your salvation? It's ludicrous. He's for you. Of course he is. As we'll sing in a song or a hymn later, his love for you is forever proved in the crucified Christ. That is your anchor in the midst of the storm. That's how you know that God is for you. Meditate upon Christ given to a cross in your place for your salvation and know with certainty that God is for you. And that will steal you against all fear. A fifth thing for when you're afraid. Reason with yourself. Right? Sounds very reformed. Use logic. Reason with yourself. Verse 4. What can flesh do to me? Verse 11. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? If God is sovereign cares for you, hears you, sees you, loves you, and is for you, what can man do to you? If you are on God's side, what can mere flesh do to you? The Bible tells us in multiple places that all flesh is grass and it withers away. What can mere men do to you? Reason with yourself, Christian. And in reasoning with yourself, I think that there's three answers you can come to with this. The first is you can consider that man can do a lot to you in a sense. And sincerely, like, right, this isn't pie-in-the-sky stuff here. The wicked can hate you. They can mock you. They can hurt your feelings. They can ruin your reputation, which we really don't understand how heavy of a thing that that is. The wicked can ruin your reputation, call you an extremist, make people afraid of you, make them hate you. They can take your stuff. They can take your house, your car, your nice clothing, your bank account. They can take your job. They can take your children from you if the government becomes corrupt enough. They can take away your freedoms. They can imprison you for Christ's sake. They can torture you, as has happened to so many throughout Christian history. I believe it was Bartholomew was skinned alive. They can even take your life. In a brutal way, they can kill you. There are many things that the wicked can do to us. But in another sense, there are very few things that man can do to us. God is sovereign, remember? There are very few things. That means that he can, or rather that man can only do to you whatsoever your heavenly Father has ordained would come to pass. The godless can do nothing without divine permission. Even if what they do is miserable and harms you deeply. And I am not making light of that. We can suffer a lot. But they still cannot do anything beyond what the sovereign will of your loving Father is predestined for your life. 
They can't. They can't go beyond his will. And what do we know about the sovereign plan of God and the wickedness of men? Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. After Joseph sold into slavery and suffered for years, what does he say to his brothers when he finally sees them? As for you, my little thing here, you wicked men who harmed me, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things, and real quick, the Greek there means all things, work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All things. The wicked can only do that which God has ordained would come to pass for His people. That is to say, they can't do anything that your Father hasn't ordained for His glory and your good. Or I'll let Jesus get the last word on this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Not a hair on your head can be harmed apart from the will of your father. Or third, still in another sense, in an ultimate sense, they can't do anything to you. They can't do anything to you. They can make you miserable here. They can cause you pain here. They can kill you here. But listen to what Jesus tells his disciples when he's warning them of future persecution before Jerusalem would be destroyed in AD 70. Listen to what he says about persecution. It has relevance here for us for when we're persecuted. Luke 21, 16 through 18. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Some of you they will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. How does that work? They can't touch your soul. They may kill the body, but your salvation is written in stone. As one early Christian martyr said, they can kill us, but they cannot hurt us. He said that on his way to death. They can kill us, but they cannot hurt us. They cannot do anything to us, brothers and sisters, because our souls have been purchased and saved by Christ, our God. In closing, let me encourage you. Let the world rage. Let the darkness get darker still in our time. Let the fires of hell roar higher all around us for a season. We will not fear. We will not fear. Our God loves us. Our God is sovereign. Our God keeps a record. Our God hears us. Our God is for us. Man cannot touch us. We will not fear. But we will praise him all the while. We will praise him. While the tempest rages on, we will praise him until he delivers us from it. And whether he delivers us in time or eternity, we will praise him still. Just like David did throughout this psalm as he was surrounded by enemies. We will not be afraid. We will trust in God. And if God delivers us in this life, we will pay our vows and present thank offerings to him on earth. And if God allows us to die in this body, we will present our thank offerings to him in heaven and gladly await the resurrection of the dead. But either way, we will praise him and we will not fear. He has saved us.
and he will help us. So when we are afraid, we will put our trust in him who is blessed forever, the only God. Amen. Let's pray. God, help us. When we are afraid, help us to put our trust in you, you who are ultimately trustworthy. Help us to trust in your mercy and your grace and your care and your love for us and your sovereignty over it all. Help us to not value this world so much, God. But help us to trust wholeheartedly in you. God, you know what you've predestined for our lives. And we don't. But we know that you will not abandon us because you gave your son for us. Help us to remember that. Help us to remember that as we suffer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.